Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the fourth part of a short series about digital health in Asia. In the previous episodes, you could get a general overview of the region with Julian de Salaberry, the CEO of Gallon Growth Asia, the leading analytics exclusive health tech research analytics and advisory firm in Asia PAC. The second episode presented China with Julie Wang, VP of Customer Success at Linked Care, a Chinese IT company offering products and services including cloud-based electronic health records platform, clinics management system, and supply chain management solutions. The previous episode presented the state of healthcare in India with Kartik Dar and Sunil Anand from Project Echo, a global project with a revolutionary approach to medical education. Today, we'll be traveling to a much smaller country, Singapore. Let's take a short break from digital health with a fun fact. Did you know that Singapore and Slovenia are the number one countries in the world for children to grow up in, according to the second and latest annual End of Childhood report published by non-governmental organization Save the Children? Believe it or not, it's true. I added the link to the report in the show notes. Okay, moving back to digital health. Singapore is a small country with only 5.6 million people. The government in Singapore is promoting IT adoption and innovation in healthcare. National Electronic Health Records System was rolled out in 2011. Combine that with the countrywide connectivity, mobile first population and a lot of openness for collaboration with the private sector and you get a health tech epicenter in Asia. Excluding China and India, Singapore took the lead by deal volume share in Asia in 2018 with 30%, followed by Japan with 27% and South Korea with 13% according to Gallant Growth Asia. In this episode, you'll hear from Tony Estrella, a startup founder, investor, corporate innovation leader and strategic advisor with work experiences in the US, Europe and Asia. Tony recently published a fiction novel, Comatose, which opens up many ethical dilemmas regarding clinical trials inclusion, the future of AI and new technologies in medicine. You will hear about the book and lucid dreaming in the second part of the discussion. And after this episode, there's only one left in this special series about Asia. You will hear about South Korea, an amazing country where, as you will learn, Telemedicine is actually illegal. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on that episode. But now to Singapore and Lucy Dreams. Singapore has a really, really good reputation on many sides. It's not a big country. It has 5.8 million people. The healthcare system uh, has good healthcare outcomes. Electronic healthcare records have been available for a few years now. The system is universal and you have an obligatory uh, health savings account. So you dedicate a proportion of your pay to your savings account, which then goes to cover your medical costs. What's your experience, you know, with the healthcare system, especially since uh, you lived in so many places so far? 
So your question on Singapore uh, is a good one. I think it is held in very high regards as a, a country that epitomizes the best of healthcare uh, and where it can go. And I think like many things in Singapore, there's a, a large part of that that's a designed component, uh, meaning that the government was very active in thinking through um, how to create the right uh, system and infrastructure to help its citizens really elevate uh, amongst other countries globally. And they've done this in financial services. They've done this in, in healthcare and education. You know, what, what amazes me most about this country, and I, one of my former colleagues that I worked with uh, when I was with MetLife, uh, she was born here. And then she moved to the U.S. Uh, when she was in her 20s. And then she eventually moved back here um, after she had three kids in the U.S. And when she left, she didn't, her family didn't have running water. And she came back. And it's, you know, one of the most impressive countries that have, you know, really risen up so quickly considering that uh, it didn't have a lot of natural resources at its disposal. And I think the design component of that really meant that the single payer approach, having the, creating a mix of the way that private insurers can support that, having public hospital systems compete for resources by dividing the public hospital system up into two groups and really push innovation, creating an environment where it attracts talent globally to tackle some of the bigger challenges in healthcare and, and be a leader in R&D and in deploying out solutions for the population, being welcoming to expats with equal access to really good healthcare. Um, I think that's all a design system. The other part that, that I think helps to create really good outcomes in Singapore is creating an appropriate tiered system where the basic healthcare needs can be filled efficiently and in a cost-effective manner through highly dis dispersed uh, polyclinics, so being able to quickly get to a GP-like experience, and then using hospitals for more complex uh, cases. Now, that isn't 100% always true, but generally it does work that way. But one of the things that I saw is that Singapore has an initiative called Smart Nation, which aims at using digital technology to advance the economy and populational needs. And for example, the number of elderly citizens is expected to reach uh, almost a million people by 2030 with a declining uh, old age support ratio uh, with low birth rates. So um, there's really a lot of awareness, it seems, already on what the problems are going to be in the future and how they should already be addressed today uh, through caregiving and other options that the, the country offers. Yes, that's true. And I, I actually think going one step further than that, another uh, thing that not just Singapore does, but other countries are doing is creating data sandboxes where private industry can collaborate using public data in a private safe way to be able to advance solution development and innovation. And I think that the smart city approach and linking that to uh, the ability to, to create new solutions with good data sources behind it is, I think, a critical element of any country in thinking through how to spur and, and stimulate growth and, and improvement in health outcomes.
in 2016, uh, Accenture did a survey, I'm sure you know it, about the healthcare in Singapore. And it found that two-thirds of consumers who believe they should have EHR access want to see exactly what the doctor sees. So not a summary. And I thought uh, uh, an insight that consumers with uh, uh, EHRs find uh, physician notes about their visit or and lab re results most helpful for managing their uh, health data. How does that influence the whole way people are thinking about solution designs for, for hospitals and doctors? Yeah, that's a good question. The, I, I think the uh, um, results of that, I, I think, are still in progress. You know, I've, I've spoken to a few folks about the direction of where that can go. And the, the challenge of having informed patients Uh, is making sure that all the information is, is relatable and understandable. Sometimes it's not. And therefore, the other side of it is making sure that whatever is shared with, with patients can be summarized in the, in the most appropriate way so that it, it maintains the transparency which you've described, but also helps to uh, not overcomplicate the discussion by having spending the time that between a doctor and a patient explaining notes versus trying to improve the outcomes. Now, that being the case, I think that uh, one thing that's really impactful about AI uh, is the ability to do just that. So if I were to fast forward in time, the interaction that I would like to see would be one where for every doctor visit I get, I have some meaningful personal uh, health dashboard that I, I see, and all of that interaction gets summarized for me in a way that I understand how the engine works so I can trust it. And I think that trust in the healthcare system is something that is very important. And, and uh, you know, in a place like Singapore, there's definitely a lot of trust between citizens and government. And I think that creates a very good first leg to be able to put new systems into place. Can you name a few examples of digital health solutions? The, the number of startups in Asia, if I, if I break down the data a bit, um, is spread out across the region. And as you would expect, based off of The number of people in India and China, they also have the largest number of startups um, in the region. But the country that comes in third it would surprise you. It's actually Singapore. Singapore is only five and a half million people and yet has uh, more than 10% of startups in the region, which is third behind India and China. And I think that that's an impressive collection and, and network that's come together here. And so Uh, you know, for anyone who's interested in learning more about Asia and, and wants to visit companies, this is a really uh, easy place to come because it's small and you can see a lot of different businesses tackling different challenges. How difficult is it to move to, to Singapore? How open is the place for foreigners? I will share the experience I've seen from others um, and also from my own, which is the focus on innovation for Singapore is extremely high. People who come with skill sets that are capable of driving and implementing change, I think, are highly valued here. You know, like with any other country, there's always dynamics of trying to manage the number of people who enter a country at any point in time. And so I'll put that to the side because I think that's something that is a, 
you know, certainly out of anyone's control and case by case. But I've seen and heard from many people that Singapore is, is very welcoming. I know it's from a business setup perspective. Another company I work with, uh, Savonics, uh, San Francisco based, and I helped them uh, uh, expand their team from uh, their U.S. office to set up a Singapore office here. The Singapore government was extremely helpful and supportive of that experience for them. And uh, they now have five people here in, in helping to grow their business across Asia. And they're, they plugged in very seamlessly into the overall ecosystem of other, he- not just health tech companies, but startups and investors in the region. You know, their, their Series A that they raised is a combination of investments from Singapore-based investors and uh, Silicon Valley investors. You know, there's, there, I think there's good case studies that are not one-off case studies, but just are reflective of the environment. And if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're interested in coming as there's an investor or someone coming from an MNC perspective or academic uh, background and want to do research or um, want to practice medicine here, I can think of numerous people who could be examples of, of successfully doing that for Singapore. So overall, I would say it's very welcoming and uh, the environment and the infrastructure to make that happen. Uh, the Asia-Pacific health tech ecosystem is actually the second largest in the world. The funding in 2018 amounted to 6.3 billion invested in health tech in Asia. Asia clearly has enormous growth potential. Uh, it's 4.4 billion people in 44 countries. You know, if you look at the challenges of chronic disease, there's an explosion of the, the disease growth. Uh, across the region in prevalence and incidence. If you look at lifestyle risk factors, the obesity levels of individuals in Asia is also rapidly changing in a negative way. And so there's uh, opportunities if you look at it from the dimension of which health outcomes should be influenced and which should be changed. There's a huge number of people out here. And that's also a very mobile first and, and uh, digital centric society. Cashless payments very, being very common. And so the ability to leapfrog legacy infrastructures that might exist in the U.S. and in Europe is happening already. And it's making healthcare more available and, and, and healthcare delivery models are happening in a very different and unique way as compared to what, how it might develop in the U.S. and in Europe. So when you say mobile first, can we stop here for a second? How does that influence the whole mobile apps adoption and uh, basically the lifestyle of people? Um, one of the most important dynamics that is influencing day-to-day life is um, cashless societies. In, in China, uh, everything is done through WeChat. It's a overall aggregator for your life experiences. And so you're able to make payments for anything, whether it's taxis or going to concerts or restaurants. Um, so you don't need to carry a wallet or credit cards around. Everything is done through your phone. And that same ecosystem is happening and coming up in a- in Southeast Asia as well, not necessarily through WeChat, but through other platforms. You know, I, it's a very rare day where I actually have to take any currency out and 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 um, and use that in, in, in many countries now. And I think that just changes the mentality of what's the most important device and how you end up interacting with others and, and interacting with the healthcare system. In the West and in the US, you know, now the companies are creating safeguards so people wouldn't spend too much time on their phones. You know, we're talking about digital detoxes and all sorts of ways to decrease the time that we spend on devices. 
Yeah, I, I think those still hold true in in Asia. You know, digital addiction is a, a real thing that you know, be not having the uh, ability to de- detach yourself from your device for periods of time is, I think, a challenge for people. So let's if I break that down, there is the transactional element of what you can do with your phone versus the positive and negative connotations which come with immersing yourself from uh, engaging in, uh, in, in taking in content on your phone for the sake of entertainment. Um, that includes social media. The, the business models that are happening out here that are influential and are different are the ones that are transactional. One example would be uh, in Indonesia, if you want to get your drugs prescriptions filled, rather than deal with two hours of traffic in Jakarta, and two hours would be a good day, you can actually use your mobile device to go and fill a script, um, have your clinician approve it, and then have it delivered to your doorstep by someone on a moped. And you know that's something that's unique to that environment because of the combination of challenges from traffic patterns and getting from point A to point B and the way that the mobile in- infrastructure has set it up to be able to seamlessly have cashless payments uh, combined with physical delivery. Uh, a second example would be the influence and use of telemedicine and, and being able to connect virtually with healthcare experts who might be assisting you with something is also much higher. And we can go through numerous examples, but all of those are really about the transaction of helping to bring health in a digital or virtual experience to more individuals. That's actually very necessary in this part of the world because you look at uh, India and China as examples, there just physically isn't enough hospital beds or physical facilities to support individuals. So new models have to be put into place to make remote and virtual care available and real and tangible and and as meaningful of an interaction as uh, what we've been able to see in the West for being able to just go by and see our GP whenever we want. You recently wrote a book. Since you are an investor, an entrepreneur, and you've you're in constant uh, contact with startups. Can you pitch it in three minutes? So what's the competitive advantage of the book? Why would uh, the readers choose this book over other books? Who are you targeting? Who do you think is going to enjoy the content most? The book is called Comatose, and it's a fiction novel about lucid dreaming. Uh, and for clarity, lucid dreaming is where you not only know that you're dreaming, but you control yourself in your dreams. Uh, so when I wrote this book, it actually, uh, I thought about three different groups that would care about this subject. Uh, the first group is people who enjoy learning about dreams and sleep and where the future can go. I equate that, uh, our knowledge today, to where uh, we were in knowledge about space travel in the 1950s. We know a little bit, and there's so much more out there that we can learn when you add comas in as well as another topic. Um, you know, there's a, a expanse of uh, opportunity for us to make things up and figure out whether they're real or not. Uh, now, my story is about four people who are trying to cheat death, uh, and they independently discover a link between lucid dreaming and comas, which not only puts them on this race for survival against each other, but also helps to relieve individual pain. And that race for survival leads them on this globetrotting, fast-paced thriller that ultimately explains why we dream. Uh, and in the process of creating the story, 
uh, I had to help deal with the fact that each of the characters went through some traumatic health event. And as you said, I work in the industry of healthcare. So I reimagined the future where uh, all of these people went into a hospital where artificial intelligence and holograms and robotics and smart devices was part of their experience. And that helped me to ground a new reality as to where we are in the, where all the innovators and entrepreneurs and investors are moving the industry towards and set a fictional goalpost for us to target. And then last, the other aspect to this book is I'm a big classic music fan and my wife is actually a classically trained mezzo-soprano opera singer. And so I use the story of La Traviata to inspire some of my characters. I read the book and uh, I think it opens up some really important industry questions, access to healthcare data, ownership of uh, the healthcare data, inclusion of patients in clinical trials, even in an involuntary manner. So I was wondering, what's your view? on all these issues, you know, because uh, when looking at um, industry media, it, they are often full of uh, positive um, expectations of the potentials of ideas of new technologies, leaving aside the unintended negative consequences that always come up with, with new technologies. I think the promise of AI, uh, if you look at it purely from a technology perspective, is immense. It, it's certainly a transformative uh, technology that is already changing the way things happen. Um, you know, looking at China, for example, and you know, going into when you I flew into Shanghai recently, and you know, your facial recognition and helping with security and tracking people, all of that is really uh, efficiency gains and productivity. Um, but like any new technology, there can also be unintended or negative consequences. And uh, I certainly explored that in the way that I uh, brought in different characters into the book. One of the main characters is a, is the leading doctor on, on comas. And he himself has gone through a rich journey of conflicting experience and motivations and intentions. And I think that AI ha is, is uh, certainly one area where we do need to make sure that we keep our human selves front and center and consider the consequences of emotional interactions as well as efficiency interactions. So in a, in a, in a caregiver setting or in a hospital setting, you know, what's a good use of AI, for example? You know, if it can help improve the rate of diagnosis and improve the frequency and accuracy of it, that's great. But there's still the human element of communicating those findings to not the, just the a uh, person who's impacted by uh, a change in their health status or, or dealing with a debilitating issue, but their families as well. And then there's also questions about where should AI be used um, today versus what boundaries should be set, uh, where perhaps the future is not quite ready yet to become reality because we should tackle ethical questions first. Uh, you are also a lucid dreamer. Um, just to clarify and um, explain this a little bit more, can you take us through the the experience from your very personal perspective? Uh, most people actually have had a lucid dreaming experience. So the the data is rough. Somewhere between fifty to seventy percent of people have had lucid dreams, but most adults don't. That means that most of the the lucid dream experiences come in our childhood. And there's a reason why, as adults, most people can't. And I'll come to that in a second. For me, lucid dreams are actually 
very lifelike and it's sometimes hard to distinguish from our conscious reality. Um, if you're really a rich, lucid dreamer, you actually have a bit of a question sometimes as to what is, what, what is happening when you're awake versus dreaming because they're that lifelike. The level of control that you can have in lucid dreaming is comparable. Um, I can choose to go and get up from where I'm currently sitting or uh, flying is actually a very common occurrence in lucid dreaming, so I could just choose to fly off. Uh, I do have recurring dreams fairly regularly, so in the first experience, I might uh, stay and, and explore what's happening in the inside of the, the rooms that I'm in, and the next time I'm in that uh, experience, then I might choose to just fly out and see what's happening around. You know, all of these things actually were very rich and vivid for me, uh, and it's happened since I was a, 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 a child. And I have kept a very strong focus on having good sleep hygiene. And what that means for me is the ability to continue to lucid dream even as an adult. Um, so I break down lucid dreaming experiences into and, and being able to remember them into three stages. One is um, recognizing that you lucid dream and can do it. That's one important one. Now, getting yourself there is a completely separate topic. And then the third is remembering those dreams. Uh, and I think each one of those, we can spend um, a ton of time talking about them. But the short answer is that uh, this isn't something that's accidental. You can actually train yourself in all three of those areas um, to be able to experience some of the things that I've experienced. And ultimately for me, uh, I took notes on my lucid dreams for eight years and it became the basis for Comatose. I jumped the plot, characters and key scenes. And, um, you know, here we are with my first fiction novel. Is it always uh, real places that exist in the world or is it sometimes also imaginary places that you would travel to? It actually varies for some people. I, I've heard and, and have now spoken to a lot more lucid dreamers beyond my own experience. Um, and I'd say um, the majority of people will say it's not just places you have visited and experienced uh, in your um, conscious self. Uh, and that's definitely true for me. Um, you know, I have these intergalactic dreams that uh, last hours on end and um, you know, when I write down what my dreams are, uh, sometimes I'll end up with the 10 pages of continuous notes. Um, and clearly we, we, as, we as humans have never really been in intergalactic space wars yet. So those aren't real. And even some of the, uh, or not, not seemingly real and, and, and even places in, in, uh, that I explore there, they could be influenced by my, my conscious self, but I don't always recognize where I am. And I think that's true for most lucid dreamers that I've spoken to. I think the book addresses a very uh, important issue of today's society, which is that uh, younger generations are living in the so-called experience economy. So it's not that much anymore about ownership and having a place to stay permanently, you know, and getting indebted to get uh, a real estate. It's more about experiencing things. And a lot of new technologies are also addressing this interest. So VR and VR is also used for health purposes. So this intersection between uh, reality and places that don't really exist but can be sh shown through, through VR or lucid dreamings are becoming uh, an increasingly interesting space to, to explore for all sorts of purposes. Yes, uh, I, I agree. And, you know, some of the 
things that I think are important to understand about looking for new experiences, lucid dreaming being lucid dreaming being one of those is, you know, what are the considerations you should have and what are your responsibilities that you should have uh, in trying to escape from a particular reality or a particular set of experiences and where, where does it take you? And so I actually had this conversation with um, someone a couple of weeks ago who has been studying mindfulness and meditation, explored various religious aspects of uh, how deep you can go in mindfulness. And I think that the same principles of what people do in thinking about meditation apply very much to lucid dreaming. I actually get a lot of sense of calm and reflectiveness and even a sense of figuring things out that are complex in my life through the way that I go through lucid dreaming. One thing I found out by accident, uh, which is intriguing for me, is in, in Buddhism, there's actually... Tibetan Buddhism is an example, you know, a stage of, of, of becoming closer to uh, figuring out what, what uh, how to be a happy individual. And I'm simplifying the, the discussion here for a second. But one of the first stages of really practicing um, and going through that is to be lucid dream on command. And so there's, you know, there definitely connections here, which we don't understand yet around where sleep and dreaming and comas are going um, that will require lots of study. You know, back to your your question around you know what what people are doing to have new experiences. This certainly can be one, and there's people out there who can be good guides and things you can learn from others to help uh, you know change your perception of reality. In the process of writing the book, what did that teach you about business? I imagine you know you really need to find a dedicated time to concentrate. To build the story, did you first design the plot and the characters before putting it all together? Or was it just like an imaginary or uh, imagination workshop where you would just sit and try to see where the imagination will take you? I actually, the, the thing I equate writing to the most, if you've uh, ever been a, a coder or had to develop complex code, I actually found that... Uh, Writing a book and, and crafting the structure uh, was very similar to having to be a coder and, and develop complex programs. It required a lot of conceptual thinking and putting pieces together and being willing to swap out ideas and to try to figure out what was the most elegant way to uh, bring something together. So that was one aspect. I think a, a second, there's definitely a discipline here that's required to write a, to write a full length novel or even writing a shorter piece of content that can be shared. Um, you have to really think through what message you're trying to communicate. And clearly with a the novel, there's multiple messages that you could um, try to integrate, but you have to have a clear path of where you're going. Um, otherwise, you can end up in a meandering state of uh, trying to tell a tale and, and, and bring uh, to life something without ultimately figuring out where how to conclude it. In my personal writing experience, I was actually fortunate um, that my lucid dreaming was so impactful and influential in that I dreamt the end of the book first. So I knew where I was going. And over the course of time, I actually dreamt key scenes and characters. So my journey might be a bit different to others because it was kind of like, imagine walking into a room and seeing the last 15 minutes of a movie and then progressively over time, walking in and out of a room and seeing different scenes of that movie. 
So when you actually sit down, you actually have a lot to work with. That's how my journey started. But I still had to think through and work through how to get that all captured down. So I spent uh, three months uh, part-time, weekends, uh, outlining and writing backstory on characters. And then over the next nine months, I spent, uh, my initial target was a thousand words a week. Uh, and then I realized that wasn't enough. And then it became 3,000 words a week and then 5,000 and eventually went to a thousand words a day. Yeah, that helped me not just have the discipline to uh, make sure I wrote enough, but um, making real tangible progress towards finishing the book. And in total, it took me 12 months. You know, that I think if I equate it to your back to your question around business is no different than the discipline and the, and the, as an entrepreneur to take something intangible and make it real. Uh, it requires a lot of planning, uh, organization, commitment, sleepless nights, um, and prioritizing your end goal to other things that you may want to also be doing at the same time, um, sleep included. And um, are you already planning the next book? How come you decided to do, do this challenge just now? <laughs> It's a good question. So I, one of my startups was, um, uh, inspired me to really pursue my creative self. We built a online, uh, and cable video on demand television network in the U.S. and, um, myself along with the team that, uh, I put together with, a, with a, a whole group of committed individuals around that. And in the process of doing that, I, I realized that I was really interested in uh, script writing, producing, um, storytelling. And so uh, I decided that I wanted to uh, see if I could create something uh, from start to finish on my own and really pursue something that ca- captured my imagination and, and, uh, and I could bring to fruition. Um, part of that was inspired by the fact that my wife is a Uh, lives a dual life of an opera singer and a corporate person. So she's been doing this her whole life. And I really was inspired by that. And so when I, I did this, I actually really went through the process, got through the writing the first manuscript. Um, the book got selected as a semifinalist in the William Faulkner writing competition, uh, which then led towards the path of ultimately getting it published in the UK. And your question around uh, where I'm going is I have dreamt the sequel to this book. So I know uh, where the character growth is going to happen and the end of that book. And perhaps it becomes two more books. I've since dreamt also a separate fiction novel. So my lucid dreaming inspired writing continues to work well for me. And it's actually well balanced in where I spend the rest of my time in working with healthcare entrepreneurs and focusing on investing. What kind of books do you like reading? Because uh, in my opinion, you know, if you want to be an inventor, if you want to have new ideas, you really need to immerse yourself in uh, different experiences and uh, have a broad overview of uh, what's going on in the world and how others are thinking. And when I had the interview with the medical futurist Bertalan Meshko, and I asked him what he's reading, he said that he likes reading fiction novels more than uh, just, you know, industry insight analysis books, because uh, the fiction novels give him more ideas about where reality could be. And that's always the beginning of ideas that eventually do bring up uh, uh, positive solutions. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think breath is important. Um, so I tend to read quite a range of uh, different books. I mean, why, why don't we go with what I'm currently reading right now as, a, as an example Um, I actually, I enjoy reading several different books at the same time because they're thematically very different. Uh, so 
Uh, one book I'm reading right now is by Kai-Fu Lee around AI superpowers, which is uh, the breaking down the current dynamics between the AI race that's happening in China versus the U.S. and why they're so distinctly different and where that could go in the future. Um, another book that I'm reading is by is Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, which uh, is the sequel to Sapiens, which is a interesting book around um, the the history of humanity cap and and interpreting uh, some of the trends that overall uh, guide where the direction of where we're going in a broad historical context. From a fiction perspective, I enjoy reading Robert Harris books, which are historical fiction, and then I enjoy sci-fi. So I enjoy uh, James S. A. Corey uh, and the Expanse series, which is uh, you know, like the, the the one description of it is the Game of Thrones in space. Uh, so and it's a uh, book nine just came out, and uh, uh, book eight or book nine, and I'm I'm uh, waiting to get to that one when I finish up one of these other ones that I'm reading right now. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. This was the fourth part of a special series about Asia. In the next episode, the last part of the series about Asia, you'll get to know South Korea. Stay tuned.